So Alex has a, a pineapple phobia. We're working through that. <laughs> Hopefully some refreshing there. Something happened when he was a little kid. Uh, sorry about that. So I heard, I heard some notes. Uh, let's, let's get a little interactive here. Yeses. Who, who's a yes? Raise your hand if you're a yes. Okay. Um, Austin, tell, tell me why on earth you would put something as disgusting as pineapple on something as good as pizza. Can you just tell us that? Because it's weird? Okay, you like doing weird things, so you're just weird. Cool. All right, that's a good explanation. All right, how about the no? Who are my no votes? Who are my no votes? Okay, Jimmy, tell me. Why, why is it a no? It's because it's like putting syrup on your pancakes. Oh, it's like putting syrup on your pancakes? Oh, interesting. <laughs> it's like having a uh, chocolate-covered pretzel. It's like sweet and savory. So it doesn't go together. Sorry, I'm, fight, I'm fighting the other side right here. I'm with you. Okay, I'm with you. Which side? That's a good question. I'm on the right side. I'm on the side that says absolutely not, okay? Yeah. Paul used a phrase in Romans, may it never be, okay? That's the phrase I'd like to use about pineapple on pizza. The funny thing is I've never heard anybody be like, you know what? It's a good question, but I had no opinion. Doesn't, don't really know. Everybody's kind of got a pretty solidified opinion about whether pineapple should be on pizza. The right answer is no. Um, but your answer could be yes, and that's fine because that's an opinion, right? It's not a truth claim. Right? If I made a truth claim and I said, last night I had Chick-fil-A for dinner, right? Either that's true or it's not true. You wouldn't say, well, that's your opinion. That's just what you think. I disagree. You didn't have Chick-fil-A. Like, well, I, I did or I didn't. It's one or the other. And there are some claims like that that get so controversial and so polarizing, which is a word we're going to talk about today and try to define, polarizing. Basically, when you have a statement or a truth claim that separates the crowd, that there's no middle ground, that it keeps moving people to the end. Imagine like, you know, like a little, like the ball of earth, right? The sphere, right? We got the North and South Pole. The magnetic pole pulls things towards the poles, right? And that's basically what happens today in the Gospel of John. John records something that Jesus does and something that Jesus says, and it's actually not just one thing, it's multiple things in our chapter today. And what we're going to find is it constantly pulls people apart, which sounds like a bad thing, but really it's a good thing because it's moving the people who don't like Jesus, it's pushing them further away. And the people who do embrace Jesus, it's making them trust him more. It's a polarizing thing that we see. So please grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. It's funny because this is one of those lesser-known chapters in the Gospel of John. A lot of people know what happens in John 6. Jesus does those miracles. A lot of people know what happened in John 3, where Jesus talks to Nicodemus. A lot of people know John 4 with the woman at the well. A lot of people know John 9 with the blind man and John 11 with Lazarus. Not that many people know what goes on here in John chapter 7. And we're going to cover this whole chapter actually in one week, one weekend. We're going to cover 52 verses, if you believe that, um, this morning. But what we're going to see is this is an important turning point in this book where people start making decisions about Jesus. So check this out. It says, after this, those are the first two words of John 7, after what? Remember what just happened before this. You had Jesus feeding over 5,000 people with those loaves, right? And the loaves that were miraculously brought. Five loaves, two fish, that was the natural thing. He takes it, multiplies it, makes it 50,000, 100,000 loaves. We don't even know how many loaves because there's tons of people there. Then he walks on water, right? He, he crosses the Sea of Galilee. Then he speaks in Capernaum, which was last week's sermon. Jesus talking in this synagogue in Capernaum, basically saying, you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. You've got to follow me. Your life has to be in me, not in your religious system or anything like that. And then what happened last week? People walked away, right? That's what we talked about last week. These disciples, people who called Jesus their Lord and master, they walked away. Now, John says, after all of this, Jesus went about in Galilee, which is a funny phrase to go about, right? Put on your British accent. Oh, they went about. Like, that's what I hear in my brain. Right? He went about Galilee. What does that mean? He was kind of traveling all around. But in Galilee, it says, now, he wouldn't go down in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why were the Jews seeking to kill him in Judea? Okay? It's because Jesus was already there in John chapter 2 and 3. And he traveled back in four, and he went back in five, and he traveled back in six. He's been going back and forth. Why do you think they might want to kill Jesus? What has happened, maybe in John chapter two, when Jesus went into the temple? What did Jesus do in the temple in John chapter two? He took all their money changers and he dumped them, right? He made that whip of cords and he drove them out. Seems like actually he did that twice in his ministry. So at the beginning and end, and Jesus says, well, they want to kill me, so I'm not going back down there. 
Well, you might say, is he just being cowardly? Uh, well, not exactly. We're going to hear his explanation in a minute. Verse 2 says, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Feast of booths. You might not know much about that feast, but it's basically where these people would go down to Jerusalem and they would camp. They would camp out. They'd bring a tent. That's what a booth is, right? Um, maybe you served at a fall fest booth, right? What's, it, what's the booth? It's just a tent, right? Um, in the Old Testament, they use this word tabernacle, which was um, what this feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. It was where they would celebrate the time where the Israelites lived in the wilderness, where they lived in booths and tents. They would like reenact that for the week. So imagine this festival. You got all these people coming down from wherever they live in Israel, coming down to Jerusalem, living in tents for a week. It says that feast was at hand. Now, this all took place in about the month of October. It was actually this month. So in the month of October, you got to remember, what must it be like in the city of Jerusalem in the month of October? Okay. Was it nice and green and lush and rainy? Or was it dry and dusty and fires? A lot like Southern California. That's exactly what it was like. It was dry, dusty, just like how today the weather's pretty hot and it'll be hot this week and this afternoon and it was hot last week and there's fires going on in Northern California. That's probably a lot what it was like um, down here in Jerusalem. So that's important for later on. It says, so his brothers said to him, which <laughs> that's weird. Jesus had brothers. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus had brothers. Um, so a little theology lesson here. Um, were these full brothers or half brothers? Half, right? Can't be full, right? Because uh, first of all, who's, Je who's Jesus' mom? Mary, okay. Um, who is Jesus' dad? Uh, exactly. That's, that's the hard part, right? Who is his dad? Well, God, right? Well, how did he come to be? Like, like what, are, what, what, what are his genes matching? His gene, I mean, half of his genes come from one, half of them come from Mary. Who do they come from? Well, the Holy Spirit is said. So these, it's just a weird thought, like, what, what did Jesus look like? Where did his genes come from? Right? Where did his chromosomes come from? Well, they, they came from the Holy Spirit. So um, that's dad and mom. But who raised Jesus? Who was his dad in an earthly sense, adopted dad? Joseph, right? So these kids that are his brothers and sisters, we find out in the Gospel of Matthew, seems like he had multiple sisters and up to five brothers, okay? So he's a big family, but Jesus was the oldest. Who are these people's mom and dad? Mom is Moses, or not, whoa, Moses, Mary, whoa, sorry, <laughs> my bad. Um, their mom was Mary, who was their dad? Joseph, right? So these are Joseph and Mary's kids. Jesus was the oldest, and they had a set of brothers. One of them wrote, actually two of them wrote books in the Bible. One of them was James, and another one was Jude. So it says, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples, not us, but your disciples, notice, even at this point, they don't follow him. It says that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's basically a challenge. Hey, if you really want people to know you're the Messiah, in air quotes, if you're really the Messiah, um, go to Jerusalem. Go, go, go show yourself to the priests, the authorities. They'll all embrace you, right? And verse 5 tells us what was going on behind the scenes. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. At this point, Jesus' brothers were not believers. Verse 6 says, Jesus said to his brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. That's what we've already gone over, where he basically says, Look, your time is not yet come. What are we talking about here? The time. That's going to show up a few more times. You can take a seat if you want. Uh, thank you. Well, welcome for joining me. Um, Jesus' time has not yet come. That phrase is used three times in this passage. Okay? What is it all about? It's all about the time when Jesus is going to die. So he says, I'm not coming to Jerusalem yet on your timetable because when I go to Jerusalem later on, I'm going to die. So he already knows what's going to happen. He says, your time's always here. You can go up, but the world, it says, cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that, it, that its works are evil. You, go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast right now for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, you remain in Galilee, okay? I want you to write down this first point because I think it's important to see this before we get any further in this chapter. Jesus is polarizing, okay? That's point number one. I, I want you to, to recognize that Jesus is polarizing. That means that when Jesus comes on the scene, it breaks people into two groups. They think, well, either Jesus is an awesome guy and he's probably not just a, a man, he's the God man, if what he's saying is true, or they say he's crazy. 
or they say he's a liar. He's not telling the truth. He's deceiving people. We're going to see all those different reactions here in John chapter 7. But just know at the beginning, he's polarizing. Here's how we know. Look at verse 10. It says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now that seems a little bit weird, right? Why would Jesus go up if he said he wasn't going to go up? Well, he's saying my hour's not yet come. I'm not going to be killed at this festival. So he's not saying I'm never going to go. He just says, I'm not going to make this public display of going like you want me to. Remember, here's really what the brothers wanted, right? It doesn't say this, but here's our best guess. It says they didn't, they didn't believe in him. They wanted Jesus to go, be vulnerable, show himself to everybody, and have him be killed for his blasphemy. That's probably what they wanted at this point. So Jesus is not going to do that. He's going to come up in private. Now, verse 11, it says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Think about this. People did not want to make an open declaration of their feelings about Jesus because they knew the crowd was split. It was the big gossip in the city. Where's Jesus? I wonder if Jesus is going to come. Remember last time we had a festival and Jesus was here? Remember what happened? Well, John chapter 5 tells us what happened. There was this guy that was sitting at a pool and he couldn't walk. He was lame, which means his legs didn't work. He didn't have, his muscles were atrophied. He's a person who today would probably have used a wheelchair. And Jesus goes up to this person who's laying on this mat who can't even um, stand up. He says, get up and walk. You don't need that pool to save you. You don't need that pool to heal you. I can heal you. And in an instant, those legs went from not having the, the proper muscles and, and the ligaments in the proper places with the proper strength. Immediately, in a moment, they were perfect. Perfect in a moment. That's crazy. That's a miracle. And that spread about Jesus. Ultimately, that right there is what made Jesus controversial. That's the first thing that makes him polarizing. So uh, you have on your worksheet a couple of subpoints here. Uh, recognize that Jesus is polarizing and there's some reasons for it. I gave four reasons from this text and one of them is this, because he did miracles. Because Jesus did miracles, that's the first reason he was polarizing. Because he did something out of the ordinary. Something that only God could do. That made him controversial. That made him polarizing. The brothers of Jesus were trying to get him killed. Right? And notice what they say. Go back to verse 3. It says, go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you're doing. The works. Works are another word in this, this um, gospel for the miracles. Okay? The disciples said, yeah, go, go do another miracle and watch, watch what happens. Watch the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them shut you down and kill you. Okay, yeah, go, go show the world. And Jesus says, I'm not going to go on your timetable. So at this point, Jesus is not going, but then he shows up. Now, look at verse 14. What happens here? It says, about the middle of the feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So now he's going public. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? For he has never studied. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to Bible school. How, how, how on earth can Jesus know all these things about God? He's not educated like the elite were educated. So Jesus answered them, saying, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? It's basically saying, you don't like that I'm talking from God? Just remember, the person that you love, the person that John accidentally mentioned in the sermon earlier, is Moses, right? Not Mary, Moses. They loved Moses. They said, oh, well, he's the most important guy. He said so many important things from God. Jesus is reminding them at a festival where they're celebrating Moses that, remember, the Israelites didn't embrace Moses because Moses sp spoke for God. They didn't even like him that much. They tried to get him removed, and you guys are doing the same thing. Except you guys now, you people who are Jews that Jesus is talking to, you love Moses. He's the guy that you love, but he spoke from God too. But, but you're embracing him, but you're not embracing me. It says, Moses gave you the law, yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowds were like, what are you talking about? You have a demon, which is an insult, by the way. Um, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Right? Were people seeking to kill Jesus? They were, right? Did all of the crowds know that? No. Did some of them know that and probably say this? Probably. What we're going to find out is people 
in this chapter, it's going to happen, I think, four or five times. You can maybe keep track. They're going to say things that are not true. They're going to lie. They're not speaking the truth. Or they're deceived or they don't know. So they don't have this good idea about Jesus. So they say, well, when Jesus says people are seeking to kill me, they're like, no way. You're just making that up. Verse 20. Or verse 21. Jesus answered them, saying, I did one work. Right? What was that work? That healing of the guy. That's the one miracle he did in Jerusalem so far. And you all marvel at it. Moses, he did a work too. He gave people circumcision. Not that that's from Moses necessarily. It's from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Don't judge by appearances. Judge with true judgment. He's calling them to say, wait a minute. Just remember, why do you Jews want to kill me? You want to kill me because I did a work on the Sabbath? Oh, you mean I healed this guy on the Sabbath? Oh, but your, your priests and your people, they're performing the law of Moses on the Sabbath. Is that not work too? He's just showing you guys got this all wrong. If you hate me because of the work I did, the miracle I did, just recognize that's not right. Notice in this passage, why are they opposing Jesus? Because of his teaching, right? Jesus points out that they oppose him because of his miracle, which is the first subpoint. But the second subpoint is this, okay? It's about his teaching. Here's what Jesus, here's another reason why Jesus is controversial and polarizing. Because Jesus spoke truth with authority. That's the second thing you can write down. Because Jesus spoke truth with authority. It's interesting because even in Jesus' day, for him to claim that I have the corner on truth, what I'm saying is true. And maybe what you believe is false. That was offensive to people. And when someone presents truth that maybe before was not so widely known, it breaks people into two categories, right? The people who embrace it and say, yeah, that is the truth. And others who reject it and say, no, that can't be the truth. Well, that's exactly what happened in, in this story. And that's why the, the group is so polarized. But I want to take this into our world today and realize that this is still a controversial thing. Thing. Jesus is polarizing, yes, because of his miracles, maybe less so today. Um, but even if you talk to people about miracles, if you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I believe Jesus did the miracles in the Bible, they'd say, there's no way. There's no way. And people make decisions, and they fall into one category or another. One category says, yeah, I believe he did those. And the other category says, there's no way that's possible. That happens today, too. But another thing that even happens more often is once you start talking about truth, Guess what that does? That breaks people into categories. If you claim that Jesus spoke the truth, some people will say, you're crazy. Others will say, you're misguided. And some people will say, you're right. It breaks people up into groups. I, um, I've been doing this project um, where I've been uh, a part of this like, TV show thing where we interview people. Um, one of the, the things that we've been interviewing uh, college students about is asking people, just random people we see at these college campuses, whether or not they believe in absolute truth, whether they think it's a real thing, or whether they believe all truth is relative, right? Whether the fact I had Chick-fil-A last night is relative, or two plus two is four is relative. 90% of them, 90% at least, probably more, said, I don't believe there is such a thing as truth. It's, n it's, it's just a made-up thing in your brain. Right? There's no such thing as truth. It's all just relative. It's just your opinion. So they took basically... You know, when I said, did I have Chick-fil-A last night? They said, well, that's your opinion, right? And they, they, they worked that out. And it's like, wow, how, how can they believe that? Here's the thing. That might be a foreign thing to you, but that's something I want you to be ready for in this world that today people do not generally believe in the truth. They think it's relative. So if Jesus claims to be God, they say, well, that's great. That's your opinion. That's your belief. That's cool. You can have that belief. And then you say, wait, 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 hold on. Is it true though? Because I think it's true. Jesus said it's true. And people say, well, it doesn't matter if it's true. It's just your opinion. It's like, no, no, no. We're not talking about pineapple and pizza anymore, right? We're talking about whether or not Jesus is actually God. When Jesus says all these things, guess what that does to this crowd? It breaks it up to the people who think he's telling the truth and the people who says, no, that's not true. That still happens today. If you're going to claim truth. Jesus prayed to, to God and in John 17, 17, he said, your word is truth, right? Jesus spoke with authority. Now, that's not something that I want you to do, to, to go out and start speaking, saying, I have authority to speak the truth, right? Notice, that authority bothered those people, and it would bother people today. But here's the thing. You do have a source of authority. Your source of authority is not your opinions about God or Jesus or the Bible. Your source of authority is the Bible, okay? If you're a Christian, that's your only source of authority. So 
if you're ever going to speak the truth boldly like this, you just need to know if what you're saying does not line up with what the Bible says, right, then you have no source of authority. But if what you're saying is what the Bible says, then guess what? It's not your opinion versus their opinion. It's the truth that God put in his Bible versus whatever anybody else wants to say. It's our only good, solid source of authority. Jesus says, my teaching comes from God. Now, check out verse 25. Check this out. Back in our passage, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? That's kind of a confusing question because it's basically saying, do they think he's the Christ or do they know that he claims to be the Christ? Either way, it's showing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders who really didn't like each other all that much, they weren't doing anything about it yet. Now, verse 26. Oh, no, verse 27, sorry. This is the crowd talking again. He says, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, time out. Is that true or false? Right? That's false. So there are conf there's confusion among the crowd at this point about who Jesus is and even who the Messiah is. So it's not super clear in their minds. They say that he's going like, to jump off a spaceship or something. And he's just going to appear. Right? That was their interpretation of a couple Old Testament passages um, that talked about you know, Jesus not having the same parentage that most people have. They misinterpreted those and said, we don't know where he's going to come from. Right? Clearly, we know where he came, came from, and that wasn't a problem for him. Now, verse 28 says, so Jesus proclaimed in the temple, and he taught this, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. Now, what he's saying there is, yes, you know where I come from. You know that I came from Galilee, which it's like if I said, hey, uh, where, where did John come from? Where did I come from? You could say, well, I, I came from Orange County, right? You know where I com come from, right? I came from Laguna Hills. I live in Lisa Viejo. You, you know all those things, or at least you know them now, right? They're saying, I've got this problem because we can't believe Jesus is the Messiah if we know where he came from. He has to be some alien or some, some weird messenger from God or maybe an angel, right? They had a misinterpretation of, of God or uh, of the Messiah. And Jesus says, look, you're right in a sense that I come from a different place. I do come from God and it's God who sent me. So I am different from everybody else. And it says that was the thing, verse 30, check this out in your Bibles, look down. It says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour was when he was gonna die later on. It says, yet many of the people believed in him, which is a great thing. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this guy's done? Basically saying, Jesus has proved it over and over again that he's the Messiah, right? Can the Messiah do more than this guy? He's raised this guy from, from not being able to walk to now he's got these perfect legs and he's walking around in this city. He probably still lives there. I mean, this is only, you know, a year later. People know this guy. He could be an evangelist for Jesus. Also, he fed over 5,000 people up in the north in Galilee. Certainly people knew about Jesus and John only includes a couple things that Jesus did. People knew about him and they said, we got to believe in him. He's the Christ. His speech here is all about where he came from, okay? That's the third thing I think that's polarizing about Jesus. You can write this down. Because Jesus claims to be from God, okay? Because Jesus claims to be from God. That's the third thing. He's polarizing because he's standing up saying, I come from God. Now, if you're a Jew, back in this first century setting, and you hear somebody claim, I came from God, that should be like red flags, like, whoa, 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 right? No, you don't. If you're like me, you didn't come from God. They had good theology. But here's the problem. They missed and they misinterpreted what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. I think it's clear in the Old Testament, according to passages like Isaiah 7, 14, and like Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, and Psalm 110, that the Messiah was not just a person born like everybody else, that they were God. Right? Isaiah 9 says there's going to be this son that's born, and we're going to call him everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God. Those are titles that can only go to God. And they said this, this baby is going to come and you're going to call him God. And that's a good thing because he is God. Right? I think the Old Testament said that and they missed the point, I think. But Jesus claims to be from God. And um, that's controversial for you today. If you say Jesus came from God and he is God and he's the only way to God, 
Is that controversial? Is that polarizing? Absolutely. It's a very polarizing thing to say. If you talk to maybe some of your friends um, and say, well, hey, here's the thing. You need to believe in Jesus because he's the only way to God. If you try to work your way there on your own, if you try to earn God's favor, if you go through any other religion or or any other system and you try to get God's favor, it's never going to work. You have to trust in Jesus, which sounds like such a good, loving thing to say. Guess what a lot of people do? They say, oh, that's exclusive. You're excluding me. You're saying that God won't accept me for me. Bible says, yes. That's the whole point. Yes, he won't accept you for you. You need to come through Jesus. Just like I can't come to God on my own, you can't come to God on your own. And people say, that's exclusive. I don't like that. So if you're going to be like Jesus is in this passage, you're going to be polarizing too. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is pretty clear here, overtly clear in John 14, that he's the only way to God. That's controversial back then. That's very controversial today. Christianity is exclusive in that it's the only way, but it's also inclusive in that whoever comes to Jesus will be saved. So it's not like this exclusive club that's like, well, you have to pass all these tests before you can become a Christian. Like, we won't let you in. No, it's inclusive in that sense. We welcome anybody who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus. But it's exclusive because that's the only way. It's a lot like like an elevator or something. Have you ever been in an elevator and uh, in a big, tall building where there's like stair, they had a staircase that worked for a while and then there's only emergency stairs now and you can't get up there. The only way to get up to like the, the top floor is through an elevator. You say, wow, it's so exclusive. I can't, it's like, well, the button's right there. Like anybody can get in the elevator, but yeah, that is the only way to get up. You can't try to climb the building. It's not gonna work. That's the only way. And you don't balk at that and say, oh, I can't believe how exclusive this building is. I can't believe I can only get up through the elevator. You're like, thank you for the elevator, right? That's kind of what, like, what Christ is saying. He is the elevator. He's the only way. But if you point to people and say, no, I, you're trying to climb the building. You're trying to take the stairs. You're looking for an elevator somewhere else. This is the only one. People say, oh, you're just being mean. You're just being exclusive. It's a polarizing thing even today. So just know if you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to be polarizing too. Now look at verse 32. This scene continues back in John 7, verse 32. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers. Okay, three groups. Chief priests, Pharisees, officers. Now, I want you to imagine like this. The chief priests were the the people in charge. Okay, The Pharisees were not in charge. And and that's something that people um, get mixed up. They think, oh, the Pharisees, they're religious leaders. Yes, in the countryside, they were very influential. Not in Jerusalem. Okay? There were some important Pharisees, but most of the people who were in power were Sadducees. Now, um, you pronounce that sad, you see, because they were sad, you see, um, because their theology was bad. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in, a lot of them didn't believe in heaven and hell. They just thought when you died, that was it. They were this weird group that was very secular, um, like they, they adopted some of the Greek thought and they kind of just melded it into to Judaism and they weren't like the solid hardcore people. Right? You know who the solid hardcore people that believed the right things about God? Those are the Pharisees, okay? Which is something we don't understand. Jesus, uh, his theology lined up with the Pharisees. It did not line up with the Sadducees. So that's why when he calls the Pharisees out, it's such a big deal. So anyway, you've got these two groups of people. Do they like each other very much? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The answer is no, they didn't, right? They did not like each other, but they got together. Think about this. This is crazy. Two groups that don't like each other get together because they have a common enemy. Who's their enemy? Jesus. They get together. They call officers. Imagine, you know, these big, burly, strong, like, like even like police officers, right? These seem to be the officers for the chief priests who worked in the temples. So they were under their jurisdiction. But imagine like big, strong police officers coming up to Jesus. They've got their gun on their hip. They've got their taser on their hip. They've got their, their handcuffs. And they go to Jesus to arrest Jesus. That's the scene. Now, verse 33. Jesus said, I'll be with you for a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I'm going, you can't come, right? And, and for us, because we know the rest of the story, we think, oh, he's saying he's going to heaven, right? And they can't come because they can't meet him there. Um, we know that, right? But for them, that must have been a weird thing. So look at their response. They're like, where does Jesus intend to go? The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks up in the north? 
where these Gentiles were? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where you or where I come, you can't come. They're confused about that. You see how there's more confusion about Jesus in this passage and people are confused. Now, it says on the last day of the feast, the great day, John says it was the great day. Here's what happened on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. What they would do um, is in this weird symbol that represented something that happened in the Old Testament, they would take water, which at this point in the year, right, there's a lot of water or a little bit of water in October, in the drought season, in the fire season. There's not much water, right? What's the city of Jerusalem like? Dusty. It's dirty. It hasn't rained in six months. It's a lot like, you know, going to L.A., downtown L.A. in October when it's 110 degrees. It's just gross and dirty. And that's what this city's like in Jerusalem, except there's a million people camping out. So I guess it is kind of like L.A. But there's all these, these tents all over Jerusalem, and everybody's living in, in these tents, and it's dusty and it's dirty. And what do the priests do? They take this, this big thing of water, and they dump it out as like a sacrifice on this altar. They dump it out. And it was this symbolic way of saying, God provided, us for, God provided for us in the past. They're gonna provi- he's going to provide for us in the future. And it's remembering what happened in the Old Testament when Moses struck the rock, when they were in the wilderness, in this dry place. What did God have happen when Moses struck the rock? What came out of the rock? Water, right? Water. Streams of water coming out of this rock. He actually did it twice. Exodus 17, Numbers 20. Happened twice. Second time, Moses hit it too many times and got in trouble. But water came out, provided for these people. Jesus stands up on the last day as all this stuff is happening in the city, as it's a dusty, dirty city where there's an altar that's just been dumped this water on. He says this, stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, there's some rich symbolism that if we, if we don't understand what's happening at this feast, we don't get it. Jesus says, if anyone thirsty, are you thirsty? It's October, it's really hot. Are you thirsty? Right? I know you got this physical thirst, but let that point to that spiritual thirst that I talked to that woman at the well, where she was spiritually thirsty. She was trying to find life and satisfaction, everything else. Jesus says, come to me, just like he did with the bread. He says, you want bread? You're physically hungry? Come to me, get spiritual bread. It's more important, It's eternal. Come to me, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Just like that rock that Moses struck, and out of it flew, uh, flooded all this water for the people. It says, now this was talking about the Spirit. John adds this in verse 39. It says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, future tense, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, past tense, because Jesus was not yet glorified, future tense. So saying, at this point in time, The Holy Spirit had not been given in the way it was in Acts chapter 2, but it was going to be given. And what this is talking about is the Holy Spirit, right? This water coming out of their hearts symbolizes this special relationship that the people have with God. Now, what is that all talking about? Our last sub point here, it says Jesus was polarizing because he demanded a response. He demanded a response. He said, come to me. That was controversial. Because think about it. There's a lot of controversial figures in our world. You can probably think of a couple of them. Um, You don't necessarily have to come to an opinion about them, right? I mean, you could just be on the fence. No one's forcing you to say you have to choose between this person and that person. You have to like this person or like this person or embrace them or reject them. You don't really have to do that many times. Here's the thing. Jesus is unique because Jesus is the only person that you have to, have to, have to make a decision about. You have to. Your whole eternity depends on the decision that you make about what you're going to do with Jesus. That's it. That's why he's so controversial. He calls these people to a response. We don't really have time to get into this discussion about the Holy Spirit like we'd want to, but you can write down this passage where Jesus talks about in John 16, verses 7 and 8. John 16, 7 and 8, under that, that fourth subpoint, Jesus promises to send a helper. He says, it'd be better for you guys if I leave. It's better for the church that Jesus leaves this earth. Because he's got roles in heaven that he cannot do when he's here on earth. He's got to pray to the Father for people. But also he says, if I'm here, I'm not going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And the Holy Spirit's not just going to be this person who sits in a chair and that you can come ask questions to like I am. He's going to be in every real Christian's heart. That's the teaching there. I know there's not much time to unpack that, but 
Jesus demands a response. And here's the thing. He demands a response today. That's why Jesus is polarizing, okay? Other so-called religious figures aren't as polarizing as Jesus, maybe, because Jesus says, you're going to believe in me or you're not going to believe in me. If you believe in me, you'll pass out of judgment from death into life. If you don't believe in me, you're condemned already by your own sin. Not by me, but by your own sin. That's controversial. If you have an idea about Jesus that is not polarizing, you probably have the wrong Jesus. You're probably thinking of something that, that, that's wrong. Maybe you made up a Jesus in your mind that you think, well, I've heard he's really nice, so I'm just going to put everything I think nice is and just lop that on what Jesus must be. No, well, Jesus is what we see in the Bible, okay? That, there's no argument about that. You can wish he was something else, but that's what he is. And he calls people to response, just like he calls you to respond. And so many of you perhaps have made a non-response response to Jesus. You said, well, I know I should become a Christian, but like, I'll do it later, right? That's a lot of people's story. That was my story too. I told you guys that last week. But here's the deal. Not making a response is your response today. If today you do not respond to Jesus by coming to him, taking up his offer of eternal life, and giving, getting in your heart this river of the Holy Spirit in your heart, okay? If you don't come to him, you are saying, no, thank you. Don't want that. That's your response. So just know Jesus calls everyone to response. But before we talk about the world and outside of this building, I want you to think inside, not just of this building, but inside of your heart. Have you responded to Jesus? One of the things that John 16 says the Spirit will do is convict, convict people. And that's why I think a lot of you probably are under conviction, but you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What that means is the Spirit is like working on your heart from the outside in and you're convicted. But once you become a Christian, then he's working from the inside out, right? And a lot of you m might be convicted over sin and you feel bad when you do things that are wrong. But he's, it's like in a spatial picture, Jesus says, it's like he's on the outside, right? One day he'll be in you. And if you trust in him, he'll be in you today. That's what he's getting at here in John chapter seven. Now, after that, when Jesus says, you can have salvation in me, which is something we've talked about four or five times here in the gospel of John already. Now, look what the crowd does. Look at verse 40. Let's finish this passage. It says, when they heard these words, some of the people says, this is really the prophet. They said, yes, that's exact. I need to come to Jesus. Absolutely. He's the prophet. He's the one that Moses wrote about. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. All the way from Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 49, all the way through 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 53. This is the Christ. Some people got it. But some said, is the Christ really to come from Galilee? And now we're going to have some confusion. Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And he comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Right? They're saying Messiah should be hanging out in Bethlehem, not in Galilee. Now, funny question. Right? Did Jesus come from Galilee or did he come from Bethlehem? What do you think? Did Jesus come from Galilee or Bethlehem? Both, Right? Did I come from San Clemente or Laguna Hills? Born in San Clemente? Grew up in Laguna Hills. Where did I come from? You tell me, right? Well, you, you came from both, right? You came from San Clemente and you came from Laguna Hills, I guess. So like, uh, yeah, I'm known as someone who's from this area, but guess what? I was born somewhere else, right? Just like many of you weren't born here. Maybe you're born in another state. If I said, where are you from? You'd be like, well, I grew up here, but I'm from somewhere else, right? Here's the thing. This confusion about Jesus could have been cleared up very easily. All they had to do was ask Jesus, hey, where were you born? And Jesus said, I was born in Bethlehem, but I'm from Galilee. Right? More confusion, more things that, it's funny because they don't even ask Jesus. And I just think, oh man, I wish they just would have asked Jesus because those people would have had that question confirmed in their mind and they would have seen, wow, Jesus really is what he claims to be. But those people, it does not say they asked Jesus. It doesn't look like they asked Jesus. They just kind of muttered with their friends about Jesus. It said, so, there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. What happens there in verse 44 is a very powerful and instructive thing that still happens today, and I'll prove it to you. People in Jerusalem did not want to make a decision or a public declaration about Jesus. Okay, they didn't. Why not? Because they were afraid of what their friends thought. That's literally what's going on here. People don't want to make a decision because they're afraid if I, if I follow Christ, well, 
the Pharisees don't seem to be following Christ and the Sadducees don't and the chief priests, they don't. Some of the crowd does, but like, what about my family, right? Is my family gonna follow Christ? Jesus basically says, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You need to follow me. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They show up back to the, these officers, right? The big, burly, scary officers. They show up back to the people who sent them without Jesus, right? That's kind of an awkward meeting, right? Um, and they're like, why didn't you bring him? And they said, the officer said, verse 46, no one has ever spoken like this man. <laughs> we couldn't take him. Are you kidding me? No one ever spoke like him. That's crazy. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Are you crazy? Are you stupid? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? No, it's just the stupid people that believe in Jesus. That's what these Pharisees say. He says, the Pharisees and the authorities, they haven't, but this crowd who doesn't know the law and they're accursed, some of them embrace him. Are you kidding me? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not happy with these officers. But notice what's, what's happening here. We've got these people, even the officers, who they're like, oh, I don't know what to do about Jesus, but they're afraid too. They say no one spoke like him, but they didn't say, and we became Christians today and we followed Jesus. Right? Well, there is a guy, verse 50, who did make a little bit of a stand for Jesus here. And he gets in trouble for it. Verse 50, it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, John chapter 3. Remember that section where he comes to Jesus at night because he's afraid of what people think of him if he knows Jesus, right? That's what's going on here. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them. One of who? He was a Pharisee and a ruler. He said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing to learn what he does? Question mark. He's asking a question. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? That's like a, supposed to be like a racist thing, a racist slur. Are you really from Galilee? I mean, are you following him too from that slimy place? Basically is what they're asking Nicodemus. He said, search and see. No prophet ever even comes from Galilee, which by the way, is not true, okay? Jonah came from Galilee. Nahum and Hosea probably also came from Galilee. So this is not true. There's a lot of things that are not true in this passage, but notice what happens. Nicodemus stands up for Jesus, and what does he do? He gets hacked off from these people a bit. He loses relationships and friendships, and he doesn't even do much. All he does is ask a question. He couldn't even get out anything more, and they just freaked out at him for asking a question. Are we really treating Jesus fairly? Why don't we just listen to him and hear him? Because probably at this point, Nicodemus is thinking, once these guys actually come face to face with Jesus, they're going to talk differently about Jesus. One thing to say it from afar is another thing to say it to his face. But what's this all talking about? Well, Nicodemus, the crowds. I think Nicodemus is our good example a little bit. He's a good example because he stands up for Jesus and he divides over it. So we, I, want you, I want you to realize that if Jesus is so polarizing, if you follow Jesus, you will also be a polarizing person, which means people will not want to be your friends anymore, period. People won't want to be with you if you follow Jesus. You need to see, is that worth it? Is that worth it? Point number two is this. I want you to be willing to divide because of Jesus. Be willing to divide because of Jesus. That doesn't mean that you're going to hack off all your relationships if you become a Christian. In fact, some of you probably gain more than you'll lose at this point in your life, but you need to be willing to divide because of Jesus. Nicodemus serves as a good little example for us here at the end of this chapter of people who are willing to. Guess what the crowd was not willing to do? They weren't really willing to make a stand. Where are the people standing up and saying, this is the Christ, this is Jesus? They mutter it. They whisper it. They say, wait, this could be the guy. But because it wasn't worth it for them to lose friends or family or relationship or status, they didn't come out and say, I'm following Jesus. You might think that sounds backwards. Didn't Jesus come to unite people, right? Why should we divide because of Jesus? It's actually a lot of people's critique of Jesus. They say, I, I just, I've talked to somebody for that show. Uh, somebody was like, I, um, this was out at Georgia Tech. They said, I refuse to be a part of any religious system because religion divides people. It divides, but I won't be a part of it. Right? But then that same person turned around and says, you know what, but it's really cool. I see these Christians hanging out and I'm actually, they literally said, I get jealous of them sometimes because of their relationships with other people. It's just so funny. This girl says, I won't join because it's polarizing, but I really wish I, I could join because um, I'd have a lot more friends that way. It's interesting. But here's the deal. These people needed to be willing to divide. Jesus said this in John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 10. 
verse 34 to 39. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. It's like, whoa, that's weird. What do you mean? You didn't come to bring peace on earth. Didn't the angel say peace on earth? Well, talking about something different. It says, I've come to bring not peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And we've got Christians and non-Christians in the household. Guess what we have in a sense? We have enemies there. Whoever loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. On the flip side, whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. You found your life here on earth? You say, I'm good. I don't want anything else. Well, you'll lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying, look, you might have to divide even from your family. And I know that message might not hit home for some of you because you think, well, my family are, are Christians. Okay? I just want you to consider if you were in these Jews' position, okay, which makes your position look a lot easier and better. But if you were in these Jews' position, and you heard Jesus talking, and you saw him, and you heard him speak, and he offered eternal life. He offered a river of living water flowing out of your heart for the rest of your life and into eternity. You heard him say that. You saw his miracles. But if in order to follow him, your family would hate you, and you would lose every last one of your friends, would you follow Jesus? If the answer is, uh, no, I wouldn't. Oh, then, then you're not ready to become a Christian yet because you need to see that that is exactly the situation these people were in. And many of them did follow Jesus, but others didn't. If you had to lose all your friends, would you follow Jesus? Some of you would say, yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, write this passage down. James chapter four, verse four. James 4, 4. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? If you wanna be friends with the world, you want to be popular, you want to be liked, and that's your thing. And that's like, ah, that's what I want to do in life. If that's what you want, you just need to realize you've made God your enemy. You can't have it both ways. I heard a sermon about this passage, John chapter 7, from a guy who lived a long time ago. Um, you probably have heard of him before, Charles Spurgeon. He, he preached a sermon on this, and um, I was listening to that this week, and uh, he said something that was such a good illustration, I, I had to use it. I want you to imagine he lived in England in the 1800s, okay? So their main transportation was railroad, okay? He said, this passage causes this division and people make a, come to a point of decision and there's a change in their life. He says, it's a lot like when you're on a train and it, it changes course. You know when they have those operating switches and you know they're on one line and then they switch over to another? Well, what happens, and it's the same way today in London and a lot of big cities that have a lot of trains, what they'll do is they'll split you off of the, of the rail you're on onto another rail, but then it'll run parallel. It'll run right next to your old track. And what he said this passage is like, it's, it's like young people in the church making decisions about Christ. And they make a decision about Christ and they go on a different track. But the old track looks a lot like the new track. And the reason I thought this was so important for you is because maybe if you become a Christian, your life will look pretty similar. It'll look similar. You'll still go to church. You'll still be in small groups. You'll still read the Bible. It says, but the problem is there's going to be such a junction where these two paths will cross, they'll turn, and they'll go a world apart. One will go on one side of the country, one will go on the other, and the end of their life is completely different. Here's the thing. You right now are at that point where you're either going to get off the rail that you're on now and enter this other rail or you're going to stay where you're going. But here's the thing. Over time, you're going to separate and you're going to become a world apart. You might think, well, if I become a Christian today, if today's the day I become a Christian, I, I, people talk about this weird, huge, radical transformation. What's that even going to look like for me? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It's going to look like changing course and going down a different path that might look kind of similar to yours. But I'll tell you this, from being in the narrow junior high ministry myself, seeing two different people take two different paths, even by the time they're my age, they're worlds apart. People who want to follow themselves and do whatever they want to do, they just keep going down and it separates, separates, separates. Then there's other people who made a decision to follow Jesus in junior high. And guess what happened to them? Their world is completely different than that other person's world. So you might minimize 
the responsibility you have to make a decision right now by saying we're just, you know, we're just young, we're just kids, we're just 12, we're just 13, whatever. It can't be that much of a difference. But just know that whatever decisions you make about following Jesus now will make a massive impact on the rest of your life. And I would advise you as a person who waited too long, and I didn't wait that long, but I waited too long. I was 14. Some other leaders could maybe tell you they waited longer. Um, but following Christ from your point on is the, the only way to go. It's the only thing um, that you should even be considering. So um, as we think about that and talk about that, we're going to talk about that in small groups this week too. But I just want you to keep thinking, um, have I made a decision to follow Christ? Am I willing to be polarizing? Am I willing to step out from the crowd and even the world and be divisive in a sense because of Jesus? Or am I just hanging on to my friendships and my relationships and that's more important to me? We're going to talk about that in small groups, but I want you to think, if, if that's something that you're thinking about, I want you to talk about that with a leader uh, today if you're struggling with that. So I want to pray for that as, as we um, close this morning, as we think about how we can apply the sermon. Um, I want to pray that God will show us that. And if you're one of those people who knows that, I want you to talk to a leader today. Let's pray. God, you were so clear here in John chapter 7 that some people follow you and some people don't. And I just know that the end of their life was a world of, of difference. And I just pray for these students who um, might not see the, the impact of their decisions right now, but I just pray that they would submit to you, that they would listen to you, just like some people in this crowd did. Some people in this crowd that Jesus talked to, they, they submitted to you and they, they followed you. Many of them who were early disciples probably came from this group right here the year before Jesus was crucified. Just ask that you would continue to show people whether they are following you or whether they're following themselves. I pray that those who realize that they've just been following their own heart and their own path in life, I pray that you would show them that this morning. I pray that they'd have the boldness that some of these people, even Nicodemus had some boldness to step out from the crowd and follow you no matter what it cost them. I pray that some of these students would recognize that they need to step out of the crowd and follow you no matter what it costs them, no matter how many friendships they lose or how many family members think they're weird because you offer eternal life. You offer something the world can't offer. So I pray that more students would embrace that message and that they trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.